Here, it becomes apparent that the social machine is identical with the desiring machine. The social machine's limit is not attrition, but rather its misfirings. It can operate only by fits and starts, by grinding and breaking down, in spasms of minor explosions. The dysfunctions are an essential element of its very ability to function, which is not the least important aspect of the system of cruelty. The death of a social machine has never been heralded by a disharmony or a dysfunction. On the contrary, social machines make a habit of feeding on the contradictions they give rise to, on the crises they provoke, on the anxieties they engender, and on the infernal operations they regenerate. Capitalism has learned this and has ceased doubting itself. While even socialists have abandoned belief in the possibility of capitalism's natural death by attrition, no one has ever died from contradictions. And the more it breaks down, the more it schizophrenizes, the better it works. The American way. American baby hell yeah. of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to the Kachinok Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, I just want to let you guys know we have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Send us a buck. We're looking at chapter three, sections one through three of Anti-Oedipus, but we need to introduce our guest, Daniel Tut. He's got a podcast. Tut, it's, tut. Called, <laughs> it's called Jouissance Vampires. Check it out. And is there anything else you would like to tell the audience about? Maybe a little bit of your background or or just your interests, anything at all? Well, first of all, it's an honor to be here. How are you all? My podcast actually started in a anti-Oedipus reading group at the... Wow. Yeah. I live in Washington, D.C. And we met at a place called Comet Ping Pong, which is famous, <laughs> famous, you may or may not know, for the pizza gate. Yeah, yeah. Which wow. will, in a way, connect to a later topic, <laughs> which we're going to address today. <laughs> Incest. Uh, obviously, this is actually a pizza place just very close to my house. It's all <laughs> slanderous rumors and not true because a lot of my friends actually work there at the bar and stuff like that. So it was a wild story. But we met in the back room at Ping Pong with Mike Crumpler and a few others. And then from those conversations created a kind of theory philosophy podcast. But, you know, I've been studying critical theory, philosophy. I did my PhD at European Graduate School with Alain Badiou. And um, I got a book coming out with the Paul Grave Lacan series oh, nice. on psychoanalysis and the politics of the family is the title. So it's kind of like a look at where we're at with the family today. It's kind of political construct, looking at all of the psychoanalytic literature, some radical, some more moderate looking a lot at like Christopher Lash's arguments in the culture of narcissism as well, and looking a lot at Mark Fisher's arguments as well. So looking at kind of how we can think a kind of revolutionary organization of the family, this has been something that's very interesting to me. So that's kind of my current research. I'm almost done with it. It should be out next year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's great to be here, though. 
I mean, I think I remember you mentioning that maybe a few weeks ago. Yeah, um, I now just, that you mentioned that, yeah. I had forgotten the the title, but I I at least remember you saying you, you were having a you were going to be in the the Lacan Palgrave series, which yeah. is which is awesome. That's yeah, congrats. I, I, it, should, it should be fun. I'm, I'm I think it's I got a spicy argument I'm trying to put out there, and uh, you know I've had a lot of fun writing it. I think quarantine is. I don't know, had one bright side, which I have slightly more time than I usually do to write. Right. And um, yeah, somehow it's the, it's been coming out. I got a flow somehow. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's, yeah. We're actually going to have um, in October, I think we're going to do a couple of episodes with a few of the other Paul Graves series authors, Peter Matthews, who did Lacan the Charlatan. Yeah. That's and a cool book. Leon I love Bur- all that stuff on Lacan and Chomsky and that. Oh book. yeah, that should be quite <laughs> quite interesting. And yeah. then uh, Leon Brenner, he wrote a book on oh, autism yeah. and psychoanalysis yeah. that I'm sure you're aware of too, as part of yeah. it. So we'll be having those. So are both of those authors in the Lacan yeah, yeah. and Paul Grave? Right. I guess we're just rating the, the yeah, Lacan yeah, and Paul exactly. Grave we're going down. Yeah, the yeah, we're going down the list. That's. <laughs> you know, this is this is interesting. I mean, you know, I. Because I just read the Donzolo essay, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Jacques Donzolo is a student of Foucault. He wrote a book called Policing the Family, which Robert Hurley translated. I don't know if that's been a part of your your research, but his in his little essay, he argues that DNG kind of reverse some of Engels' pronouncements in his book on the family. Right. And I just... I didn't know if you wanted to they do. Oh, definitely. They do. Yeah. It seems. I didn't know if you want to say a few words about that maybe before. Well, we... Yeah. I mean, the angle stuff was um, interesting. It's kind of this, it's been an interesting reception. On the one hand, he, he has a kind of idealized view of the archive of anthropological research that was available to him. Mm-hmm. He kind of makes this argument that pre-capitalist structures of the family were largely matrilineal and that we can kind of think a non-patriarchal form of the family, but he also faced this kind of classic 19th century contradiction, which is that despite the fact that the promise of the bourgeois family was very, very unevenly distributed to the working class and proletariat, even though it became this kind of vessel where things like patriarchal abuse Mm -hmm. would go unsanctioned or unpunished, even though that was the case, the family was still the kind of vessel or kind of ground zero for proletarian individualism to emerge. So there's this profound contradiction, which is how do you sort of balance the demand for the abolition of family in the communist manifesto with the fact the working class actually finds a great solace, a great comfort, a great haven in the family, which is a contradiction that Engels never quite resolved. I think it would take later socialist feminists to kind of do that. But I think in some of the stuff we're going to look at today, we'll see actually a great solidarity with some of the general wagers that Engels puts forward, which is this idea that the family is a kind of practice. It's a pra- they call it a praxis. So that kind of stems from the Marxiological view of the family. I think the difference is, is that the archive of what's available of ethnographic, anthropological research, et cetera, is simply more abundant for them when they're writing in the kind of you know, early 1970s than Engels had available in 1880s or whatever. So, but I have not read the essay, Police in the Family. It's not, although I do have a critique of the and Batari, but not exactly on the family. It's a kind of broader critique that I offer in, my, in the book. Had you read the Claster Society Against the State, just out of curiosity? Yeah, I've looked at that one. That is a super interesting text. It's 
so central to what is going on in anti-Oedipus. I know you all have been working on it. I haven't actually fully finished this one. Gotcha. Have you finished it? We did about six or seven of the essays, and that's actually our release for this week. Nice. So Monday. I, I saw that. Yes. yes. Monday, I'll probably be dropping that. But I thought it was great as far as a text to help kind of particular Guattari, but definitely this book as well. For sure. Uh, definitely an essential companion. Yeah, I think so. But again, I think the way that the argument is put forward, all of the references to the various ethnographic sources can still, it helps to be steeped in them, but I don't know that it's necessary at the same time. How many times have you read Anti-Oedipus yourself? Is this your second time, third time? This is my first time all the way through the- Oh, really? Like from cover to cover, yeah. I guess this is my third time. I once, I once read it alone, which is hard to do. I feel like yeah. this obviously is kind of a Lacanian cartel structure is required when it comes to reading this text. Or you know, <laughs> reading it in a collective is almost essential. So this will be my third time with you all. I'm much more of a Lacanian guy. For the last, I would say, I mean, I know the exact moment when I got into this field, but it was like in 2006. So I've been doing this kind of like since about that time and just kind of intensified in my study of Lacan. I've read most of the seminars and I'm part of this like cartel network yeah. called the Lacanian Forum, which is founded by this lady called Colette Soler, who's a student of Lacan. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I've been doing a lot of kind of Lacanian studies over the years and been trying, it's really hard to write about Lacan, but you know, over time you kind of try to say something and it kind of, I mean, you've seen some of the stuff we've done. My really good friend, Gabriel Tupanama, just came out with an incredible book, held this huge conference, which was really good on that. But it is funny how much hostility there is amongst the Lacanians against Alyssa Guattari. Right. Are you aware, I, I did this program with my study collective with this wonderful artist, Lacanian lady called Braca Ettinger. I don't know if you know who she is. No, not, not familiar at all. Okay. She's a brilliant theoretician. The reason I raise her is because she was really good friends with Felix Guattari, actually. And they wrote, and there's all these interviews published of dialogues between the two of them. He was pretty fascinated in her theories and in her theory of art, which is all kind of derived in part from his concepts. So I can send you stuff, a folder of some of that stuff that you might find interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I like Lacan quite a bit. I think he's one of the most inventive thinkers that I've come across. They credit him as the first schizoanalyst, yeah, and, and it right? Seems like one, in one of the interviews that Braca did with Guattari, he said something very interesting, which is, he says, I've never been opposed to Lacan. I'm paraphrasing. He says, I've never been yeah, opposed yeah. to Lacan, really. He says, I've been opposed more to Miller. <laughs> I've, I've been, been opposed to the Malarian trend, yeah. conservative trend within Lacanianism. And that was very illuminating to me. And then, of course, you know that crazy story. I shared it on Twitter a few months ago. Lacan called Deleuze into his office one day. Did you, did you know this crazy story? I, I know about the I know about their dinner meeting, but I'm not sure I know about this. It's a separate was it, meeting. This was separate it just meeting. was it just Deleuze? Yeah, it was just. OK, him. OK. Tell us. Tell us the story. He, 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 the story goes is that one day Lacan called me on the phone and said, come to my office. And so Deleuze went to his office and in classic Lacanian psychoanalytic fashion, forced him to wait for like a half an hour in the lobby where all, right. of, his, all of his patients, his analysts are going in and out, in and out, in and out. And finally, the receptionist calls out for Deleuze to come back. And Deleuze summarizes what Lacan says to him by basically saying, he said, look, 
None of my followers have any special gifts. You, on the other hand, are an extremely gifted philosopher. I think it's time that you come with me and that you become my disciple. Mm. We can do something together. And uh, I forget exactly how Deleuze responded to it, but he was, the impression he was a little creeped out by it. Uh. Obviously didn't take him up on it. And then I think later there was the experience where Lacan tried to crash at his house and got all drunk and stuff yeah. like this, which I think, yes, I think it came, that event came after this original event, which goes to show that the later Lacan is deeply working with the problematics that Deleuze and Guattari are setting out. Yeah, in my opinion. Even though that's not made explicit, it's an undercurrent of influence. I know Lacan said very praiseworthy things for the coldness and cruelty book. Yep, that's true. And particularly because Deleuze is at pains to disintricate sadism from masochism, right? right. Because he finds that sadomasochism as, as kind of this over, oversimplification and it's a bastardization. And then, of course, you know, there's the story about holding Deleuze and Guattari up to his students and being like, you know, you guys suck. They're actually doing interesting work talking about right. anti-Oedipus. It makes sense that Guattari would say, like, I, I was never opposed to Lacan. He, he even says as late as Three Ecologies that there needs to be this, this renewed Freudianism that kind of tosses out some of the, just the conservative baggage, right? That, that you got to go back to that initial discovery that Freud made. And I think that that's how he kind of remains true to Lacan and what Lacan's trying to do. Yeah, that's true. Although in the later work that I've read of Guattari, that's true. There's a certain respect and a kind of reverence of certain Lacanian discoveries, particularly the way Lacan is going to incorporate structural linguistics into the logic of signifier and the way that functions with repression. And even I think Guattari will accept the hypothesis of subject supposed to know as the basis of the transference. Mm -hmm. But obviously he will, Guattari will present such a radically different theory of transference that when I tell or when I try to summarize it to like Lacanians, as far as I understand it, they just think that this is outlandish, how, how unrelied, unreliant it is on the authority of the analyst. Mm, yeah. Um, and and the, um, the sense in which he's circumventing that whole edifice, which itself is a huge threat to the very status of their profession. Yeah. yeah. You know, so the schizoanalytic method is, yeah, it, it is a kind of threat to the very kind of institutional legitimacy of the figure of the analyst. And it always has been. Mm -hmm. And um, and he's pretty aware of that, I would say, you know. We did an episode with Todd McGowan and, and Ryan Engley where we pretty much exclusively focused on this kind of relation between Guattari and, and Lacan that was pretty, yeah. pretty great, I think. I don't know if you're yeah, 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 aware of that, but really fascinating conversation. You know, Todd was, was, he disagreed, but very politely, you know, <laughs> uh, being, that, being, being a Hegelian and a Lacanian, you know, right, you right. would think he, there'd be more vehemence, but it was, it was interesting to see how he was, he's very charitable. So, yeah. but he's not a practicing analyst. Maybe is, is right. that what you kind of mean that, that practicing analysts find it? Correct. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah I'm okay. not a practicing analyst myself right. either, but my experience with practicing analysts is that they just maybe we could say they have a resistance to the proposals implicit in schizoanalytic frameworks. Mm -hmm. I think that's 
a fair point. And it's an unfortunate point because it, it then blocks them from tapping into the creativity yeah. that comes from that. So it's unfortunate. Shall we uh, dive into this piece? Sure. I mean, I was thinking of getting into the, the decoded flows first. Yeah. yeah, we could do that. I know that we all agreed that the third section is um, right. is where the meat and potatoes are, but we could we could maybe at least... Uh, I think it's pretty germane to talk and discuss about how... I still think these methods for warding off the mm-hmm. advent of capitalism by pre-capitalist societies, that's a very interesting point. And just understanding the what's being decoded and what's being decoded is the... Is it social repression among the pre-capitalist society or... Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the way that, I mean, the way that Deleuze and Guattari seem to be saying is that the fear is the fear of any flow to escape coding, right? right? And that the primitive territorial machine, one of its main functions is obviously this sort of inscription surface whereby codes and flows will be in like a reciprocal bind and that it's precisely what they say the it's when you have the encounter between the flows of convertible wealth with the flows of workers, you know, these two forms of deterioration that, that capitalism gets its means, its conditions of possibility met. And so it's interesting for them to say, like, if from capitalism, which they say comes at the end, we can then do this perspective universal history. It's as the negative of the other two territorial machines that they'll discuss, right? The, well, the despotic um, and the obviously the primitive territorial machine, which is what we kind of looked at today. Yeah. I really like the theory that from the earth comes the first socius mm-hmm. and the earth in the tribe, in the kind of pre-capitalist social formation is the first coding mechanism or first coding device. That's really essential also for the fact that the earth also functions as the germinal influx of desire and this kind of relationship to the status of subjectivity as polymorphous perverse. Mm -hmm. So there's this wonderful debate that obviously takes place here where they're leaning more on Jung from a psychoanalytic standpoint, who really discovered the centrality of, of the earth in a more primary way prior to the social even. Mm -hmm. And so this is huge insight. I feel I guess maybe it would be interesting to step back and also talk about what exactly is coding? How do you all understand coding in a certain, in this precise? I'm sure you all have discussed this again, but perhaps just so we're getting our bearings straight. How does that function? How does it look? I'll give my bad understanding and then I'll let Taylor come in and like demolish that. But I, to me, it <laughs> seemed, to me, I interpret it almost like the symbolic order mm. to an extent sort of codifying behaviors, codifying exchange, codifying the socius. And it's this way, it really goes back to, even for me, Durkheim, and this notion of organic versus mechanic solidarity and how those functions. And really, organic solidarity would be the pre-capitalist society because it's done through, I don't know, these, these methodologies of warding off capitalism via, I guess, strict rules relative to exchange of women, exchange of gifts, potlatch, and things of that nature, whereas the opposite, it's funny that Durkheim even uses mechanical solidarity, which would fall, rel- you know, that maps perfectly well onto industrial, post-industrial 
society where it's this more almost akin to the sort of domain of, of language, the sort of relative, sort of always kind of self-immunitizing, you know, self-referential circle of signification. That's kind of the different model. It's, it's almost like this, the mechanical solidarity of, of capitalism is, yeah. it decodes the flows, the family, all of that stuff becomes less important. And it, all the relationships get broken down into these binary buyer and seller exchange kind of binary code type thing, but that's getting yeah. a little bit into Baudrillard, I think, but no, I think that's go ahead, helpful. Taylor. Yeah. I'll just say one quick thing before we pass it to Taylor. I would just say like, it always helps me to think about the status of what a person is before they're a person, right? The idea of polymorphous perversity as a kind of constitutive basis of the human is really interesting because the proposal there is you have these kind of fragmented organs that are kind of receptors mm -hmm. of erogenous zones that are not unified. They don't have a whole, they don't have a representation, right. right? And their relationship to desire, therefore, is untethered from repression because repression comes from the imposition of that representative, that act. And so the earth is the kind of originary relation that the that that figure of the human has, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but then yeah. it is the, the act of the organization of society in a productive way that then has an elementary introduction right there of, of repression. And I think that's the inscription. That's yeah. perhaps. Yeah. It would, yeah. Would you say that Taylor? I would say that if you're exactly right, and this is the kind of model that, um, for example, Daniel Smith, I find Daniel Smith to be one of the clearest expositors of Deleuze. And when he wants to try to explain the body without organs, which is always one of those topics, he goes back to the infant, which is before the introduction into the symbolic, as Coop was talking about, yeah. it's the ununified erogenous zones, as you were talking about. So liken that to the earth as the first body without organs right. for the socius. I think that that's like, that's very uh, helpful. And, the cosmic uh, egg. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, if I think that that's where if the if the goal of every social or at least the specifically the primitive territorial machine as a socius is to yeah. inscribe the, the flows. One of the ways I think that I've been thinking about this specifically working up to this chapter with Coop when we went over prestations and counter prestations and gifts with Mouse and when we went through uh, Society Against the State and Plaster. This notion that that flows would would be not something that would ever be faced necessarily individually, right? Everything would would need to find a manner of being, if not represented, then at least valued and evaluated for the purposes of, as they say, like even, there's no pure nomad. There's always some minimum of stock right back at the the encampment or whatever it is and so this this notion of flows being in a reciprocal relationship with codes that would somehow mark their value right that's kind of how i think about it as the needs and benefits of the the collective warranted what now whether or not codings can really be about a stable inscription i think is what someone like Leotar might want to point out. And this is kind of, so I'm not really using the language of Deleuze and Guattari when I bring value at kind of out of left field, but I think about it in terms of, you know, with Leotard, he's, he's, he's looking at specifically from a Nietzschean point of view, how values are in decadence in, especially as we enter late capitalism. And so maybe 
that's the question of this, of like a fixing and a fixing. I don't even know. Values has to be taken very broadly, right? Because it's not necessarily about just this opposition between use and exchange value, but it's at the kind of at the basis of it, right? And so they say you can't start with exchange or with scarcity like SART does. You have to kind of start with marking and specifically, yes, uh, the, you know, and, and the human body itself is the space of markings, you know, and it's one of the spaces, right? So I guess that would be my question or that would be my way of thinking about why they talk about desire is not a sign of lack, but a sign of strength, right? And so it is this question of how do signs get situated with respect to flows? I guess that's kind of how I, I think about it without using or just, you know, regurgitating their language. What, what do you guys think? I mean, is that, is that helpful or is that kind of muddy the waters? I think it's very helpful. I mean, I think it's really important to understand this notion of inscription and what, where they're going to take it. I love the way, by the way, how they end the first section here mm-hmm. three, oh, yeah. where they reference, this is actually an oblique reference to the debate that Derrida started between what's more primary speech or writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they will make the argument that if we understand in script, we can understand inscription processes as an originary form of speech. Yes. I'm sorry, as an original form of writing. Mm-hmm. They say, if one wants to call this inscription in naked flesh writing, then it must be said that speech, in fact, presupposes, sorry, I was right. Speech, in <laughs> fact, presupposes writing and that it is this cruel system of inscribed signs that renders man capable of language and gives him a memory of the spoken word. Mm-hmm. So here we have a return to the category of cruelty. And the way that cruelty is instantiated in this inscription and sign process. So the then question would be, you have an inscription, the inscription creates a sign, right? And the sign is a position of desire. Mm, Yes. Okay. But the first signs are the territorial signs that plant their flags in bodies. And they make a reference to Nietzsche here. That's beautiful. It's very, talking about 145. Yeah, Nietzsche says there's so much that's that's festive and cruelty. You're right. I I, I think that this uh, this paragraph is very important for this question of how are flows and codes set into kind of reciprocal determination or however you want to. That's not the language they use, but they um, at least for this regime or this machine. Sorry, you know, uh, a flow would for every flow there would be a code, right? That's that's yeah. kind of the that's kind of the, the sort of law of, of this type of, of territorial machine. And we should also reference this incredible point about the anus, about the anus being the first um, privatized, all the first act of private is privatizing, privatization, yes. which is just as an aside, I wanted to just reference this for listeners. There's this guy, Norman O'Brown. He's the most, was the most prominent Freudian on the left wing in America, late 20th century. He wrote a book called Life Against Death. And he argues that, because, you know, in psychoanalytic literature, this is part of a whole literature called anality and the, the idea that we can understand capitalism as a structuring process over anality. And that he argues that Protestantism, he basically tries to kind of create a periodization of capitalism based on this kind of codification of anality. And the anal nature of money is the fundamental psychoanalytic way to understand the function of money in society as well. But it all kind of goes back to the idea that 
the anal is the organ which is most connected to the earth. It's the most right. primarily. So therefore, it's the one that has to be coded first, I think is their argument, right? There's a certain priority of its coding. And I wanted to see, what do you, what do you all think about that? Do you, how do you understand that? Is that? Does that mean that the anus is the kind of first organ of, that faces the necess- necessity to be repressed? Is that one way to say it, maybe? That makes sense. It's a cutting off of a, well, it feels like it's cutting off of a flow, right? Because well, like it's, the a, fl- it's a cordoning off. The flows, I just want to point out, are not a metaphor, right? It's literal flows of cum, shit, desire, et cetera. Energy, energy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. When we talk about privatization, it's not just cutting off a flow because that that's kind of the language they use in the very first pages of the book when they talk about the, the mouth yeah, it, machine and it the breast machine. It shits, it it's, it's literally cutting out a space for yes. where you don't, you don't shit where you eat, right? We, we know that's right. truism. So it's literally cording off a space where excrement would be. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's the. In terms of territory. Right. Yes, yeah. right. In terms yes. of territory. Right. And Freud says something about this in civilization and its discontents makes this point kind of when, as we began walking upright, we got our heads, we got our faces out of the shit. There's this interesting um, kind of Freud will talk about this elsewhere too, but it's this interesting link Freud makes between the nose the organ of the nose and smell with with our own shit yeah and that being Lacan will say that the greatest insight of a civilization's culture or its genius is the sophistication to which they manage shit Mm -hmm. and that's why like the roman civilization Mm -hmm. was such a profound progress in civilization because it was the one that first mastered how to manage the sewer system and so you could almost think of Western civilization, and Norman O'Brown does this in Life Against Death, as a kind of progression of a mastering of that. And D&G say that we don't shit with our anus, we shit with our mind. Mm-hmm. So Only the, the mind anus, we shit, right. Yeah, the anus is not of the social. So when we say privatization, it's actually not of the socius. It's the first organ taken out of that. So what would it mean to bring it back in? <laughs> I don't know. Well, is, is that is that is that just bringing back in the the decoded flow of abstract money, right? I mean, is that is that yeah. part of what they're kind of arguing? I mean, even yeah, Freud, maybe. Freud isn't the first to do it, but he writes about obviously symbolically for him, whether it be in dreams or in analysis. You know, money and shit are intertwined. Gold, right. geld, and and. Uh, I actually don't know the word he uses. I don't know if he says shiza. He probably says another German word, but this is the same thing where we, we, we discussed this at link on the rat man case yeah, yeah. with yeah. his, with his obsession with um, the clean Florins with ironing his, yeah. Ironing his, uh, his bills as though one could decontaminate, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and sublimate the shit from the money. Well, the argument is, is that Lutheranism had mastered this at the level of theodicy because mm. it had created an argument around the management of the anus and shit with evil and the kind of what Lutheranism constitutes in European history is a kind of immunitization of evil and the capacity for the individual person to be proactive in the management and mitigation of evil. Ooh, I like that. Right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Versus cool a collective. Argument. Yeah. Versus a collective. Lacan in, in, Lacan in seminar on the analytic act has this whole day where he reviews Norman O'Brown's argument in Life Against Death. And he really mm. loves, he really loves this whole thesis on Luther and shit. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. One of the more interesting things I've found with uh, Kristeva, right, on objection 
is the way that we kind of viscerally relate to to shit, right? It's first, it's uh, you know, it's we incorporate usually on the model of eating, but once we defecate, there's this that's not me. There's this horror, and I guess that 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 would be related to this evolutionary movement we're talking about, right? Of yeah. of sort yeah. of getting away from the shit, cordoning it off, delimiting it. Mm-hmm. sort of, you know, delimiting a, a space or a territory for it. And then when we get to the despotic regime, specifically, you look at the laws of Manu, which is something that Nietzsche talks about a lot. You know, you have the untouchables who are, who, you know, the Shandalas, their, their main task is to yeah. be the ones who have to deal with society shit, right? right? I mean, like literally and figuratively. Yeah, it has a certain sacred dimension for, that's only one version of the ascetic like, you know, there's that whole version of the ascetic for the Greeks is different than the ascetic for the Christians. The Christians would allow for an ascetic to sort of be a harbinger of truth that would not be from the untouchable class. Like mm. the bourgeois upper classes could also be in touch with that. You know what I'm saying? That dimension. Whereas for the Greeks, the wisest were always the most marginal. They were always the ones that dealt with the shit on the kind of periphery of society in some sense. So it's kind of kind of tragic that Christianity deprives us of that. I feel like there's a certain, I mean, it's obviously been brought back in by like things like Franciscanism, for example, people mm. argue, tries to bring back in the kind of mendicant, you know, interest in making the, the wise one, the poor one. And so yes. On. And that seems closer to at least what we know of what Jesus said, you know, I mean, about uh, sort of giving up everything. Yeah. Um, this is great because all everything we just went through makes a lot of sense of the phrase on 143 that the whole of Oedipus is anal and implies an individual overinvestment of the organ to compensate for its collective disinvestment. I thought that that was oh, interesting yeah, that's and that's perfect. Yeah. And they, yeah. They, and, and then, and so they basically say, this is why they bring up some of the authors who write about one of the authors who wrote a book, I think it's like African Oedipus, but then there's other sort of when psychoanalysis and ethnography starts to dialogue, you know, D&G are like, they know very well that Oedipus doesn't function, the superego Oedipus, all this baggage that, that we as modern man, you know, understand, like, we know that it's not, that doesn't grow on that terrain. And yet it's still, everything uh, is, it's as though everything is evolutionarily, collectively, moving towards it. And so it's all, this is why, why they argue it's not, it's not enough to just, it's even worse to make everything pre-edible, like it's going to lead up to it as though it were a foregone conclusion. Yeah. This whole stuff on anality is so rich and so interesting to me. The whole thing on sublimation as well, Mm -hmm. that the entire structure of the psychoanalytic idea of sublimation is inadequate because it is falsely reliant on this privatization of the anal. So what would it look like to have a theory of sublimation that wouldn't be reproducing this kind of social order of the repressive individual, basically, is kind of what I what they're trying to get at. And one of the interesting things from Malinowski, one of the anthropologists that they tether with here, he had the argument that there's certain forms of familial structure which can, in fact, transcend the problem of a kind of repressive sublimation that the European model of the family puts forward because sublimation is structured not through the father who 
has to both, in the European model, the father is sublimatory. He's responsible for, by this, I mean the revolution of the individual's desire, kind of formation of a new desire, leaving the house, becoming an autonomous individual, etc. And the father in the European model is also responsible for repressive relationship to the law, prohibition. You can't do this. You can't do that. Whereas in Malinowski's tribes that he studies, I forget the exact tribe, he says that the maternal uncle played the function of the father. And so there was a father figure who was not of the prohibitionary law. Right. And that allowed a certain better form of yeah. sublimation for the child, for the, for the young person. I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. I like yeah. that too. That's pretty fascinating. Well, and, and of course, our stereotype is you either have the creepy uncle who's potentially <laughs> sexually abusive, right? Like in Ratman. Like Ratman, yeah. <laughs> or, or you have the cool uncle who doesn't, you know, who doesn't give a shit and who's going to let you, kind of like the cool grand, grandparent, right? They, they can spoil you and they can let you have a beer, right? Yeah, we've all had the uncle of no prohibition, do whatever the fuck you want. For me, it was always a cool aunt. I, I didn't have any uncles, but it always had a had cool aunts who were closer to my age due to just some discrepancy. And so they were kind of like the cool big sister, you know, oh, and that's, that's kind of what we're talking about here. We're like, like the cool big brother who, who can yep. still like look out for you and be. Yeah. Yeah. But if someone has but, an authority. Yeah. Right. It's funny how much this is instantiated within popular culture or even to the extent of something like Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire. Whenever we were discussing this anality and money I was talking about, I don't know how familiar you you are with it, Daniel, but Tywin Lannister, who was, you know, the House of Lannister has like all the gold. And there's a joke about, you know, does Tywin Lannister shit gold? Then he's killed by his son. And there's a joke like, oh, he did not actually shit gold. But what also is kind of interesting here is that he dies like, on the toilet, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, he yeah. dies on the on the privy, on yeah. the privy, right? Which has <laughs> privation, privation. Yeah, of the there anus. You go. So there's mm-hmm. that. But also it's kind of funny that um, Tywin puts Tyrion Lannister in charge of the That's uh, right. charge of the sewers. That's right. In charge of the sewers for Casterly Rock. So I just I don't know. I just think that's it's really interesting how this sort of sticks within the Geist or whatever machine unconscious or but that also however you becomes, want to place it. That also becomes important for him winning the battle. Right. right? right. Yeah, because he knows the sewers and he can he knows a way to get yeah. behind. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. That's that's good. I hadn't thought about I always found it really interesting that Europeans think that Americans are often very dirty because we rely on toilet paper and not on the, the bidet yeah. to, to clean after you go shit, right? I wonder what there is to that. And I wonder why we have been resistant as a culture to the adoption of uh, the bidet system. You know what I mean? For me, it's like one of those things I couldn't adopt it even if I tried because I'm so routinized into using yes. toilet paper. It's like, it would be really weird. Do they use bidets in Great Britain? True. Sorry. So there's some. No. Um, that's true. I shouldn't have said all of Europe. It's like but, I, no, but where I was, they but, do? Where but, they but do? My point was, we in Great Britain, we still stubbornly stick to like the court system. These weird measuring um, uh, systems that we've we've resisted <laughs> all of the uh, the standardized. You know. Uh, so maybe there's something. This discussion of the exchange of women, anality, homosexuality, as it pertained to that exchange, and men never being more homosexual than when they're dealing with marriage. Yeah, that, I like that argument a lot. It was really interesting. And I like how they tried to, in that argument, link their wider view here, or they're kind of giving props to the Marxist 
and I think Engels, even though they don't cite Engels, who kind of seem to have realized that the question of marriage has never been structured around positive, negative, man, woman, et cetera, et cetera, but has always been a prior act of the socius, a prior act. In this case, what they will say is a kind of collective homosexuality that is actually going on in terms of the organization of the movement of marriages, right. things like that. I don't know how much that still holds today. I wonder we could discuss that perhaps, but like I very much appreciate that insight. It would have to hold more for societies that still allow for arranged marriages, right? Bronco Milanovic, he wrote this book, came out, I think, a year or two ago called Capitalism Alone. And Ooh. what he cites there is really nice is that one distinctive feature of late capitalism. I love how anti-Oedipus is created in like 1973, which happens to be 71, 73 was like right when we went off the gold reserve. So it's right. like this, this book was like literally written at the dawn of the era of finance capitalism. This economist in capitalism, he says one of the features of this period is a decline in assertative marriage or arrangements, which is more and more Western societies are not witnessing marriages that are cross-class based. But now, whereas before in the kind of Fordist period, a lot of marriages were very cross working class to bourgeois. Interesting. Whereas now people are, you wouldn't call that exactly a kind of arranged structure. It's a kind of weird complicity kind of Ooh. with the class structure in a quiet way. Gotcha. But still, but still happening. I always found that kind of intuitive as well, because I've always felt that even though I didn't meet my partner online, there's something very pre-coded, even like the control society's thesis of Deleuze, you know, there's something pre-coded in all of these arranged dating sites structurally, like it feels very structural to me. Mm. I don't know about you all, but anyways, that's a whole separate conversation. We're, we're very, very much and veering it, off. It resonates with some of the stuff that Coop and I have looked at. I mean, I was thinking of Ratman, some of his big hangups, he inherits it from his father, right? His father has a love interest, but he's dissuaded from pursuing that because he's supposed to marry up. Mm. And his father does the same thing to Ratman, where the Ratman has a love interest, but he's not allowed because he, he needs to marry up. That kind of thing is, is one of the main tensions in, in that case history. And Nietzsche himself has a little paragraph on it. Well, he has more than one, but in Twilight of the Idols, at least, he kind of says the more marriage begins to be based on love and not on these arrangements between families, these alliances, right? The more it loses its legal and moral foundation. And so it kind of marriage becomes something completely different. Uh, and he, he just kind of predicts yeah. that that's going to accelerate. Yeah. I feel like there's consequences for, like, if you're committed to the Marxist orientation, there's consequences for class struggle, because I feel like right now we're approaching a society where the kind of, let's call it the communicative even though I'm not a Habermasian committed to <laughs> rationality. But nonetheless, I think this trend that I cited a second ago means that people can't really form cross-class alliances. And I think one of the interesting things about Bolshevism, right, is that Bolshevism in any successful revolution now has to be a cross-class alliance, mm -hmm. right? And that's also why I'm so interested in when you think about class and classes, Deleuze and Guattari are Sartrean. Not fully, but they take Sartre's kind of somewhat pessimistic thesis on class struggle and his revisions of class struggle from his critique of dialectical reason here. And kind of which shows really the kind of inherent limitations to cross-class alliances. So that's just something on the horizon that worries me that more and more our societies can't form class, cross-class alliances. And that means we can't struggle for emancipation as well as we could, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I was also thinking about how if we bring up Game of Thrones again really quickly, and I know, Coop, you're more authoritative because you've read the books, but <laughs> Catelyn Stark tries to dissuade Rob from pursuing his love interest because he says, she says, um, you know, that Ned Stark, she and Ned Stark were arranged and, and they built love brick by brick. And so she kind of warns him that pursuing this love interest, not only she doesn't predict that it would lead to what it did, but that it potentially doesn't have a solid foundation. And we see what, what happens with his, his refusal of the alliance with, uh, yeah, I mean, this up in the book, they fucked this up in the show. What really, what happens? Okay. Okay. What happens is he gets, I mean, that's how they do it in the show, which I think is a better understandable by a modern audience where the arranged marriage is a difficult thing to, I think, uh, with to connect with, well, to connect with. So in the book, he actually gets a girl pregnant who is, sort of look tending to his wounds mm. and so out of honor for her he elects to marry her ah uh, i see i don't even think he gets her pregnant they have sex and he, as make a result, her an honorable woman he's so honorable that he has to take her oh, that he's like he's so committed to that to that coded that sort of throwback yeah. right mm. to the so coded flow to the he, he kind of he kind of repeats ned's exactly honor, yes, right which, which, exactly. The, which gets him killed in that universe. precisely so okay that makes sense now you know we got, we got the director's cut. Here's Thanks, a, <laughs> something I think is something I think is interesting here is how they talk about okay, marking comes first and then circulation comes next, but they say even before that I think that circulation is only allowed to occur in certain it's it's like it's minimized. Mm. But then they also say that women circulate themselves, which I didn't mm-hmm. quite wasn't clear on exactly how that was working because this pre-capitalist organic solidarity form that they do via these exchange of women and filial and segmentary so-and-so it's not very great for a woman to be an object of their literally currency for certain tribes throughout history and so forth i was just kind of thrown because i don't understand how this the sort of pre-capitalist formation has a very positive connotation for a woman as a sort of chattel of reproduction well, it may not have been a positive remark, even if it may seem like it. I know that I'm looking for it. Yeah, because what we're getting here is the way that filial structures circulate. And we're getting this whole with this whole notion of the, the filial exchange system and its connection to the productive right. fuzzy cause exactly. as well, which exactly. I very much want to talk about and how that is playing out here. I think one of the interesting side notes here is this whole literature, I'm sure you guys have discussed it when you looked at like Marcel Mao and the kind of gift economies and all of this stuff. But I really feel like a lot of people, when they think just in general, the picture that you have in your mind of a gift economy seems kind of like a rosy picture, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, <laughs> and actually, I was reading Kojin Karatani's The Structure of World History, because I'm really much more like reading this literature sideways through philosophers, Dulles and Guattari and Karatani, because I'm not an ethnographer or an anthropologist. But one thing he shows there is that the gift structure was absolutely a structure of reciprocity. So that was the logic of its exchange on the one hand. On the other hand, the way that social power and social violence derived from that structure was very counterintuitive to how it arises in capitalist structures. Because He points out that sometimes giving an excessively charitable gift back would be perceived by the enemy, other, tribe, etc., 
as like a means of hostility. So it's like this very yes, almost paradoxical system of exchange, which makes me want to, first of all, read more about gift exchange, because for Karatani, he'll want to say that even today, overcoming capitalism necessitates that we actually start to think of reciprocal gift exchange right. instead, of, instead of commodity exchange, even I mean, today. That's that not like some nostalgic thing. <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not like, uh, oh, it's buried in the past and we can't do that anymore. Right. Yes. Right? And I mean, both, yeah. Baudrillard, that's symbolic exchange in death 101 right there. I th- For sure. I, my theory here is that this is a way to ameliorate conflict virtually via the potlatch. Yeah. So like instead of us, our tribes warring together, we'll sort of virtualize that. And I will try to humiliate you by giving you a gift that you that is so excessive that you can't pay it back the following cycle, like yeah, the next it's, festival it's, time. The onus of reciprocation is on you. And if you can't do that, then I humiliate you and sort of take your manhood and your spirit and all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah and you elevate your own prestige. Right. Yeah. You're, you're, you're totally right, Daniel, to say that that gift exchange, I think. Because of our modern mindset, we think of it as, as you said, with rose, rosy colored glasses and, and think of it as, as like, oh, everyone's, you know, happy and stuff. But, but yeah, as, as Coop's saying, it's, it may not just be ameliorating. It could potentially have this, it's this whole interesting idea. And they even allude to it in the end of section three about how prestation, counterprestation, it's literally the circulation of energy that's inhabited by spirits right and so yes you know you take on an onus it's a burden to take on the gift right oh totally and, yeah but what and, i also like about it is that it's it's a specific way of treating what the and guitar call a surplus of code mm-hmm. so the gift derives from a surplus and what's nice about that they say is that the distinction between consumption and production is collapsed yes because the consumers are the producers so right in that sense yeah i mean it sounds a lot more ideal from the standpoint of, I don't know, autonomy, even though Deleuze and Guattari wouldn't use that term. But it is true that the gift exchange model of social relations kind of can not privatize or it knows how to not privatize surplus of code. Yeah. And, and oh, that's, that's really valuable. That's good. Yeah. I like that. Man, that kind of helps fill in this missing piece for us and relative to symbolic exchange and death too. Don't, would you agree, Taylor? Because I hadn't really thought about in that sense. I've been struggling with the Baudrillard reading. I've, I've said that. I mean, that really captures the kind of what his whole move is relative to symbolic exchange, in my, in my opinion. Now, well, whether I agree with that, I don't know, because for Baudrillard, it's all about capitalism codes, right? Capitalism bi- transitions everything into a binary code. So to like give you a concrete example, you're talking about online dating. It flattens out and becomes swiping right or left as a binary choice. It's like a society where the surplus of what's produced is included in the rights of catharsis at the subjective level. Yeah. Yeah. So they oh, are good. Production right. is included in things like subjective initiation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so, like a kind of uh, more holistic kind of connectivity to the productive process. Yeah. So, so it's a less repressive structure in theory, although repression is obviously still going on. They're not going to make some crazy, because that would be like some like Disney movie argument to say like, <laughs> oh, these are tribal societies are beyond repression or something. That's not what they're saying because right. even the earth is coding and repressing at this elementary level. Precisely. Right? Yeah. So the cool thing about the Claster's reading that supplements this is he talks about the initiation rights 
certain tribes, once you become a, I forget, like, what is it? Puberty age, you know, relatively speaking, they would take these blunt stones and tear your flesh with them. And they found the most blunt stones, not to where it was a cut, to where it's tearing the flesh and that pain and that sort of cruelty of the marking of the body, I think ties exactly into what you just said. I love this stuff. Like this subtitle of my book is actually the crisis of initiation. The one I'm writing Mm. for family, because I'm actually, I'm actually been reading a a fair amount about this whole thing. I'm not like a a master on this. Cause when you talk about initiation, you also talk about the esoteric and like, so there's like Gnosticism and there's like this huge, amazing literature, which I'm just starting to tap into. And even obviously Jung, there's a lot to thought there. Right. But, but uh, what I want to say is there's this guy, Bruno Bettelheim that looks on positively mentions in seminar 18. And I learned about his book called Symbolic Wounds. And his argument, really interesting apropos anti-Oedipus, because what he says is that even in late capitalist societies where you have young schizophrenic children, he said that they still self-mutilate themselves as an initiatory right, detethered from a community. Interesting. So I felt when I read that, they're like, whoa, this whole concept of initiation is extremely with us, but extremely in crisis at the same yeah. time. But even if the schizophrenic who's outside affiliation in these ways, who's foreclosed the name of the father and so on, even if that subject is still imposing initiatory practices on themselves, that tells you something very interesting yeah, yeah. about initiation, I feel. What's interesting, I think, here too, is if you think about this in the context of like a fraternity and cruelty and relative to initiation and, and so forth and I don't know, I guess it's not marking the body in, in a physical way, but I don't know. I think there's maybe, you know, man, it's kind of a throwback to that, maybe like you said, the Fordist era and before, like, a, I guess kind of more like a modern, a modernist thing, but. Yeah, because the whole thing of mutilation, according to Bettelheim, is that the act of, muti- of uh, mutil- mutilizing your organs, it actually has to do with body without organs. It actually has to do with trying to, trying to, to push subjectivity back into the state that we talked about earlier, where they have an orientation to the germinal influx in a more direct fashion, in a way, right? Where polymorphous perversity has a certain expression. And then things like gender categories and things like that are kind of seen as more fictional, less oppressive for the social order itself. And that that's the the medicine of the initiation, if you like, that's the, uh, the the gift of the initiation is that it kind of de-intensifies those arbitrary divisions. Does that, does that make sense? They actually bring up Bettelheim twice Do they? In, the, in the book. It's an earlier book, I believe. I think it's called like, I was looking for the title and I can't find it, but it's, I know they, they cite it. In any case, one of the places they cite is about his book on autism and how he calls into question the notion of regression, which is very important for explaining, for example, Freud uses it to explain Schreber and how like all that libidinal investment flows back from the world into the ego, regresses, and that's why the world is destroyed and he has to give birth to it again. You know, it, it's, it's and not only is a way of sort of overcoding Schreber's becoming woman, but also as Deleuze and Quattri themselves say, it totally evacuates the whole racial underpinnings of his memoirs and his delusions. Wow. Huh. That all of this from the memoirs gets lost. And this is why they say in delirium, the first thing is, is the ravings of history, right? It's, it's the, it's populations, ethnicities, you know, nomadic tribes, all that, right. For them, 
there's something to how the schizophrenic raves history, world history, right? And I think this is why they can then say at the beginning of this chapter, referencing kind of their subtitle, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, that if there can be a universal history sort of in this negative fashion from capitalism backwards, it has to be what critical, ironic, contingent, yeah. you know, it has to deal with this kind of rave, raving kind of how yeah, I think it, right? it was a, it's a generally, generally accepted psychoanalytic theory. As far as I understand that psychotic subjectivity actually is reliant on a generational development of its condition so that Lacan says it takes three generations to produce a psychotic subject, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that is that in the experience, you could say, or the kind of phenomenology of of psychosis at a kind of basic level, why is it interesting to do Lozen Guattari? One of the reasons why is because it's entering a zone of um, consciousness, which can circumvent that precise filial generational oppressive and repressive structure itself and can enter into this zone like Nietzsche where they're kind of outside of history in a certain sense. They're kind of, they can see the contingency of history, right? So they become not to fetishize because I think it's very dangerous to not to avoid any fetishization. And, and I know that they're not interested in that, but there's a certain capacity of being like a seer in a way, right? Where you can see the kind of familial oppression for what it is from right. that position. So it's ve- yeah, I've always been super fascinated by that. So Cooper, I found your quote. Nice. They're actually quoting someone named Mayor Fort. I don't know if this is an anthropologist. I assume it is. It's on page 142. They say Mayor Fort makes a passing remark that is joyous and refreshingly sound. That's hopefully not sarcastic, but uh The circulation of women is not the problem a woman circulates of herself. She is not at one's disposal, but the juridical rights governing progenitor are determined for the profit of a specific person, which, as we know from Kant's definition of marriage, is the husband gains ownership of his spouse's genitals, right? So you were saying... You were wondering what that meant about yeah, I wasn't the sure. Circulating. Yeah, because it felt like the circulation of women was very much male-dominated, a patriarchal sort of thing, right? Where women are sort of objectified as as currency. Because I feel like that's in these pre-capitalist societies, the economy is the trading of women, and you know, there's definitely historical examples of tribes that use women as actual currency, predating capitalism, which is something else to really that I think is interesting is maybe to bring up relative to this is that, you know, markets and currency both predate capitalism. And I don't know how much they get into that in anti-Oedipus. You would probably be able to speak to that better than I, but I'm, I'm not sure. Off the top of my head, I wouldn't be able to point to a passage, but I was just thinking about how the classes we read and the society he's looking at, specifically the Gyaki and the Gurani, you know, it's, in fact, the opposite, right? Where it's where polyandry is the norm because of the discrepancy between how many men and how yeah, many yeah. women. Right. Yeah. That's kind of the reverse. So it, uh, that's just a counterexample. Right. I think they start to maybe give a little bit more context when they say circulation is only possible if inscription requires or permits it. So I think that that's how that's 
maybe why Ford is saying it's not circulation of women that's the problem. It's the inscription within this juridical code that is, in fact, primary. If I'm reading this correctly. That sounds very correct. I also feel like the reason they say that the circulation of women is not the problem has to do with what's happening in they call initiatory societies mm-hmm. is not the exchange. It's not an economy of exchange of persons. It's an exchange in discrete organs. Right. That's a good point. So the ownership of the organ is collectivized in the initiation. Okay. See, see what I'm saying? And then yeah, they yeah, that's good. say right after that, that the first organ of privatization is the anus. Right. And then it's a, then we talk about a different layer, a different structure of the socius and so on. And that's very good, Daniel, because it helps to shed light on what they mean when they talk about what's repressed is the germinal implex, the germinal influx, right? Yeah. And just, just really quickly, I, I don't know, Coop, if you remember us talking about this, but they, they actually don't make this as clear as they could have. They bring up his name, but they don't really, they don't really describe it. I guess they assume everyone still remembers but there is this biologist kind of biologist philosopher named Weizmann. And he makes this, he makes this argument that all of biological life can be understood by focusing on German and focusing on Soma. And for him, Soma are the bodies. They're literally just kind of the vessels for this. We could say for like the genetic code was what we call it today, but the German would be immortal and would be what reproduces and, yeah. and, and, and keeps itself going. Okay. Yeah, going the, back to going back yeah. to beyond the pleasure principle, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think he does bring, he actually cites, Freud does cite Weizmann. That's right. So yeah, so they assume, I guess, that we have beyond the pleasure principle memorized and like we're familiar with all this <laughs> stuff. I just don't think, I just don't think even for educated lay people, we really talk about this Weizmannian theory anymore because it's mm-hmm. obviously been discredited for a long time. Simon Dunn spends a lot of time in, the Ilfi book, you know, trying to uh, meticulously dismantle the argument by looking at things like, you know, you could look at the smallest amoebas and how they reproduce, or you could look at schizogony, you could look at all of these different forms of reproduction that don't, that would completely scramble the notions of Soma and German. When they say germinal, and because the first time I, I read this, and probably the last time, I, I don't think in my head, I was thinking in the Weismannian categories. But if we keep those in mind, if they say that what first gets repressed is the germinal in- influx, then I think it makes it makes a little bit more sense how they could say what that Hamlet is the reverse of Oedipus or Oedipus is the inverted Hamlet, something like that, right? That it's this notion about I forget who they cite, but they cite the, the guy talking about the myth about the, the primitive taking the placenta and eating it and how now he's he's his own father. He's uh, he's the his mother's brother, shit like that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, sorry, I kind of rambled a little bit, but I just wanted to make clear for the audience. This notion of Weismann is very important for understanding this terminology of the somatic and the germinal. I kind of want to read this and I one of you might have even read a portion of this, but I thought this was kind of cool. And just to draw from the actual text a little bit, I love this a bit too. A mask is such an institution of organs. Initiation societies compose the pieces of a body, which are at the same time sensory organs, anatomical parts, and joints. Prohibitions, see not, speak not, apply to those who in a given state or on a given occasion are deprived of the right to enjoy a collectively invested organ. 
the mythology seeing of organs, partial objects, and the relationships with a full body that repels or attracts them. Vaginas riveted onto the woman's body, an immense penis shared by the men, an independent anus that assigns itself a body without anus. Or Gorma's story begins, when the mouth was dead, the other parts of the body were consulted to see which of them would take charge of the burial. The unities in question are never found in persons, but rather in series, which determine the connections, disjunctions, and conjunctions of organs. This is why fantasies are group fantasies. It is the collective investment of the organs that plugs desire into the socius and assembles social production and desiring production into a whole on the earth. Beautiful. Really get the sense in Bettelheim that part of the contemporary crisis, well, it's not a crisis, but like let's say the transgender movement could also be thought of or theorized as emanating in part from the fact that our social reality, our social relations were so deprived of the opportunity to actually experiment with the sexual organs of the other sex. If you think about it, we think of our society as post-prohibitionary in a certain way. Right. A lot of these societies that these ethnographers and anthropologists are talking about had rights for children, literally, where they would spend a week dressing the opposite sex. And this was like routinized. You know what I'm saying? And like, it's funny to me how, how repressive we really are when it comes to that kind of experimentation, you know? And there, there are many cultures where it's not a binary, you know, that male, That's male, female. Um, crazy. We can't even think that, you know? It's so drilled into us. I mean, when I was, I don't know, it's just like such a part of our formation, you know? To, oh, yeah. to, it's wild to really sit back and think about it, you know? I think the fact that we have a mostly genderless language, an ungendered language for the most part, you know, save for certain borrowings from the romantic languages, for example, you know, I think that that actually That's interesting. hides the problem yeah. more and doesn't allow it a kind of space yeah. where it could be yeah. discussed as much, which is why we get strange things like, um, oh, I saw a funny meme or not a meme, but like it was a viral tweet where they, it was a photo of a, bookshelf in a bookstore where it said we have latinx authors and it was cervantes right don quixote no. and it, it just kind of made me groan but but it, but it shows but it, but it, but it kind of it kind of shows i mean i do i do think it's mostly a, a white woke phenomenon of well, this example but you know it does show that because we are not as accustomed as other languages, specifically romantic languages, to gender our, our nouns uh, with, with our definite article, right? For example, and in our, in our indefinite article. Sure. The problem kind of, it burrows underground. It becomes less, almost more insidious, right? When we talk, right. if we're just yeah. considering... Um, well, I think what, so. What too, really, what's really interesting here is that we don't really see in these passages of these primitive social machines, we don't see conversation of phallic logics at play because I feel like phallic logics enter later. You know what I'm yes. saying? And that's really interesting because then later the crisis becomes around the possession of the phallus and the violence that that produces within families and social arrangements more generally, right? This kind of like strange unconscious vine for the phallus, which can produce things like phallicized feminism, you know, and then things get much more complex, right? So, we're almost at the point where they say this beautiful point about these primitive social sociuses should not be understood as archetypes. I love that point that they make. Yeah. These, ancient, these ancient tribal groups should be understood rather on the logic of their internal disharmonies and contradictions. 
right? And then they have, then they go on to this beautiful point of it is in order, it is in order to function that a social machine must not function well. I don't want to jump ahead too fast. No, um, it's good. And then to me, then this becomes, wow, <laughs> almost like the one of the, I don't know if I want to say seminal themes of the whole book in a way. Yeah. Because then they continue on where they end, they end that section with this is the American way. And right. no one's ever died of a contradiction, right? And that these contradictions in a sense, I don't want to say anti-dialectical, but this is kind of like why dialectics isn't up to the task of understanding the structure here, if that yeah. makes sense. You follow me? Yeah. Uh, so what do you all think about that? I mean, I think they're going to lean on Jung, obviously, for the theorization of the earth and all of that, but they're definitely not going to lean on him in terms of the archetypes. Or in terms of the desexualization of the libido, so to speak, mm. that they, that's, I mean, at least that's what they say when they, they give you points in this section, even where, where is it? Yeah, they say, Jung is therefore entirely correct in saying that the Oedipus complex signifies something altogether different from itself, and that in the Oedipal relation, the mother is also the earth, as yeah. you were just saying, and, and incest is an infinite renaissance. But then they put in brackets, he's only wrong in thinking that he has thus transcended sexuality. So right, right. It's, kind of, it's kind of playing Freud and Jung off against each other again, right? You know, uh, their, their kind of disagreement. And I would say real quickly, you know, this, this question about the role of contradiction, this has been, at least since there was repetition, if not well before in like Nietzschean philosophy, this calling into question of its, if not political, then its philosophical importance or its centrality. You know, yeah. when, when he crafts the term vice diction based off of Leibniz, among others, this notion that contradiction isn't the farthest difference can go. Right. I think, you know, I think that that's, that's continuing some of this. But obviously now with Guattari, the question is much more about the sociopolitical problem and not necessarily just a, a problem of philosophy. If, I mean, I know that the sometimes will emphasize certain socio-political problematics in difference repetition in the solo work, but obviously it comes to the foreground much, much more with his work with Lottery. Yeah. No, for sure. And it's not that contradiction is not important. Still, no. still the logic of change of, of any system is driven by contradictions, but you have a kind of more lateral conception of scission and fusion. Right. It's a completely different kind of theoretical architecture of understanding flows, decoding of flows, coding of flows, and so on in the way that those codes produce surpluses that are then taken up. And then, then you're introduced to the whole beautiful taxonomy that they develop in much more precision at later points in the text. But I feel like in this section of the text, we're really, we're looking at history, right? We're being introduced to yeah. their theory of history. And by the way, there's a nice plug at, maybe this is a good time to mention it. This guy, Gilbertine, Sibertine Blanc, Sibertine yeah. Blanc, this is a new French philosopher, wrote a book on Deleuze and Guattari on the state. And his basic argument of this text is really tethering with all of the places in the Anti-Oedipus series, Thousand Plateaus as well, where Deleuze and Guattari deal with the state, but also with history, and basically says, look, it's important to read this wider project in the relationship of other literature within the vein of Marxian historical materialism. And I think that that is important just to place 
it's important to me because I have a strong commitment to Marxism, as you probably gathered by now. But it's important to me also because Guattari has a strong commitment to Marxism. Yes. It predates his relationship with Deleuze. Right. And I therefore, I just like the idea of including anti-Oedipus series in the canon of Marxist theories of history and Marxist theories of the state, because I just feel like that gives us more more legs, more power to take this these concepts and further them towards revolutionary ends. Sorry for that little divergent point there. No, I, I think it's important not only when they champion Reich, although they also take it to task because they they want to propose a materialist psychiatry, right? But they also begin this chapter, like I mentioned earlier, with this thing where it's like, if we're going to find the innocence for generating a universal history, we have to follow Marx's rules and like as he set forth very carefully. I think that you're completely right to um, include them in that. Very, the that very range. category, the very category of universal history is a kind of Marxiological category that they want yeah. to have fidelity to, right? So that's important. What they're proposing is kind of different logic by which we yeah. can understand its unfolding, right? right? Different logic of its evolution, of its breaking apart, of its mutations, of its transformation, right. right? I just want to say one other thing. I don't know if you all think that this thesis they have that a system only works well when it's broken down, that doesn't really sound too accelerationist to me. It's you true. Know, what does that mean to you? Like, what, how do you understand that? Because I did share that idea with you all of yeah. Alfred Sunrattle, <laughs> of the ideal of the broken down. There's this guy, he wrote a book that the Italian working class kind of related to early industrial revolution technology on the basis that its efficacy when, was when it didn't work well. In other words, there's a certain comfort that the Italian working class has to technology when they could kind of palpably or tactilely interact with the mechanism and the technology itself, where he called it the theory of the caput, the theory of the broken down. Right. In the broken down, the subject related to the technology, they idealized it. They didn't idealize the perfect iPhone. They idealized the, the iPhone screen. That, was, that was the six-year-old model or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I don't know what you all think of that. It's very something to think about, maybe. I wondered if this was something to do with almost Freud talks about relative to Wolfman. Maybe it's, I think it's Wolfman where he learns more by the failure of yes. the in the analytic machine. He learn you learn by the failure more than the progress is made through failure and not by success. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like he he does say. It's interesting, though, because he wants to have it both ways. He's like, yeah, this case took so long. I didn't expect it to. But hopefully all the the stumbling blocks along the way can mean that future analyses can be shortened. <laughs> right. It's he wants to have it kind of both ways. And uh, and I think that that's part of maybe what the socius wants too is allow for a kind of flexibility. I mean, I made the, the tentative attempt or when when I responded to the question you had, which is very as you said, to the heart of the text, this question about breaking down this notion that if we go back to your example, which I think is so illuminating about the, the infant, right? The polymorphously perverse body, this notion that if it worked, if it worked really well, then it would be as though it were already a full body. It would be as though all the organs were already, it would be as though it were, had already gone through all of its becomings and, and were, oh, yeah. were adult, right? So it's this interesting thing where the, the baby, the infant, which is one of the stages we have to go through, right? And in fact, in A Thousand Plateaus, they would call for becoming infant. This notion that, that it not working well, there's actually something positive in that. 
disjunctive synthesis, right? Um, Because I'm thinking about capitalism functioning. Okay, so what is capitalism's positives in the sense of what allows to perpetuate is that for one thing, it has, and I think that they recognize via this like schizophrenic metaphor or whatever, however you want to say that is, right? Yeah, (laughs) I could go, go uh, but uh, yeah, just, okay. So the, I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, you're okay. Uh, No, no, no. I think I got (laughs) it. Okay. So capitalism through creative destruction, right? So capitalism's dynamism of creative destruction and its failure and its ability to allow for failure to take place is why it's so successful at perpetuating itself but that's and, repro- and reproducing yeah. itself that's totally true but you know my question here is we can read Deleuze and Guattari as decelerationists hmm. at the subjective level that's my claim because I'll give you a personal example it's not because I was born in a working class background that when I go to cities and travel to cities that are kind of run down kind of but still have a life like you know those beautiful cities that are run down dive bars yeah not that fancy but there's people and it's a kind of vibrancy nonetheless. I'm thinking like Worcester, Massachusetts. Okay. One of my most favorite, crazy, just run down, but yet beautiful plays. I feel at home there, you know? But again, I don't feel at home only because that's kind of what's natural to me. I feel at home also for the reasons that they're citing here, I feel, you know? So what does that mean? When you think fully automated luxury communism, you think the Jetsons, you think Everything, <laughs> yeah, everything's perfect. Everything's flows. We're all whole, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the picture that, that I'm getting. Yeah. 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 So I Absolutely. don't know if that means they're no longer accelerate. I'm not saying that, but there's something to investigate here. It's interesting because I'm always struck by I'm always struck by this this example that Guattari gives. And it could be a little romanticized, but he I think he cites this in three ecologies or some interviews surrounding it where he looks at Japan. And how it can have this balance the old between, and the new, yeah, 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 between the old and the new, right? This it's kind of like Audrey yeah. discussed with the fusion of the neo and the retro, and the graffiti that he finds, and how it exports the ghetto throughout the the white city. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that's my way of trying to answer was kind of if things worked too well, then. Right. If the socialists well, worked so well, we would just be all board minds well, or something. Yeah, right? we would be. Flo- well, there would be no change. There would be no movement yeah. at all. Everything it would be like the big freeze where everything sort of collapses into a singularity of where there's no movement at all. You have to have degradation. You have to have death. You have to have that. That's it's part of the whole cycle of deterritorialization, reterritorialization ad infinitum or whatever. Potentially. But I kind of like what Daniel's saying because it doesn't seem like they necessarily have an optimistic view about this. They, you know, that it doesn't necessarily because they, the American way, right? I mean, that's obviously a kind of, you know. Uh, and that's true. And we should also recognize that, like, a way to read Deleuze, I'm sorry to say, or maybe I'm not sorry to say, is that he had a, and Taylor, I'd love to see what you think of this, he had an admiration for American. I don't want to say culture, but definitely American literature. So like yes, yes. when they say the American way, we shouldn't understand that. We should not understand that as a derogative or a pejorative. Not directly. A little bit. A little bit. I think it's meant to be both ways. You're right. It's meant to be both ways. Exactly. Right. Because read on the superiority of Anglo-American literature by Deleuze, my, one of my favorite essays by him, and then tell me that he's not finding all of these resources within the American spirit and the American, he is, 
right? Like it's all there in Melville and Fitzgerald. He loves Scott Fitzgerald. He even loves the beat writers, you know, all kinds of ideas for even resistance and even the whole idea, the fact that the concept of line of flight is invented by George Jackson, the Soledad brother who was imprisoned when he came up with this theory. There's a beautiful essay on this, by the way. That to me is beautiful connection of D and G to the black radical tradition as well. I'm sure you guys are aware of that whole George Jackson connection. Yeah. And there's, I think that that, I think that the missing footnote in the damn book is supposed to reference Jackson. Yeah. Um, there's about, an essay that kind of does justice to that missing footnote I could share. Yes. With. Yes. That's, that's, I assume that's what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they met with George Jackson and they met with some black Panthers. I'm sure you all know that story. I tried to write something myself about how Deleuze and Guattari treated the Black radical struggle because they treated it so well, so admirably, you know, right. very righteous. Yeah, and you, your point about, I think that here maybe this, the American way is meant a little tongue-in-cheek, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but, but, but you are right that, especially for Deleuze, this notion that in America there was, there was still this horizon, there was still this ability to deterritorialize and kind of go further west right, right? Yeah. whereas it with europe it had all been sort yeah. of nomadism almost. yeah right so, so i mean why, yeah. that's why melville's so interesting for deleuze because yeah. he's he's at sea you know it's right like, exactly yeah. Yeah. that'd be a good time for us to broach the third section on the problem of, of oedipus right now yes which is uh the birth of the person <laughs> i love that it's like so it's so fascinating to read it. It's like, oh my God, all of these things now make sense. This is where we come from. It's like our, this is our prehistory from the cosmic egg of the full body of the earth and our mythical origin from the one. But yeah. I found it interesting. They kind of describe how the ambiguity of plus minus signs, yeah, you know, becomes, has to become discernible in order for the birth of persons, in order for this these privatizations that we were discussing earlier to take place. Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's, it's such a rich chapter. And obviously we get into uh, the question of incest, which we can kind of table for now. I also wanted to say something briefly, if we could about how the category of the quasi cause is being invoked in anti-Oedipus. I don't know if you all have discussed it in prior episodes, Offline, Taylor was saying, yeah, like quasi-cause becomes for Deleuze in his own philosophy and logic of sense, one of the central operators. And I know you've done a lot of background research on this concept, Taylor. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But the way that I'm understanding it here is that obviously in capitalism, capital becomes quasi-cause, but in the primitive socius, the earth functions as Mm quasi-cause. And so it's an important operator. But like, Maybe if I could say briefly for Deleuze, also in his other philosophical work on like Kant and stuff like that, he will say that even reason functions as quasi-cause or in Deleuze's ethics in logic of sense, the wound. So when he says ethics is about having a dignity in the face of what wounds you, the wound functions as the quasi-cause of the ethical structure itself, right? So I'll stop there and ask you you what you think, because they say there's kind of the enchanted surface of the inscription, the fantastic law, right? but also the magical agent or fetish, the quasi-cause. I like all of that. I mean, you know, the, some, some great authors, John Sellers and Michael Bennett, they've both written on Deleuze, but they are 
their focus, their background is the Stoics. And in Logic of Sense, Stilism himself points to Chrysippus and says, basically, this is where he gets the notion from. And Bennett lays out in his essay sort of the, the origins of this. And, and basically, as, as Stilism himself kind of points out, in the Stoic conception, only bodies are causes amongst bodies, right? And it's events that are quasi-causes, right, as, as he says, which is a kind of paraphrasing of the Stoic language. And, you know, he gives the example, I mean, stick with the example of the wound, he gives the example to cut, to be cut, right? So the knife is one body, the event is to cut, and the, and, well, the event is to cut and be cut because the other body is the flesh being cut. And you could say that the first event of cutting could potentially quasi-cause the second event of pain, for example, to be in pain or something, because for Deleuze, it would always be in the infinitive, right? Here, the way that I was trying to figure out what quasi-cause is doing, it doesn't seem like it's in any way related to the theory of incorporeals necessarily, maybe tangentially, but it does seem like this notion where it's the body without organs, the three that we're given as the form of the socius, right? We're given the body of the earth, the body of the despot, the body of capital. They each have this notion of quasi-cause, but for the earth, they say, this is on page 140, while the ground can be the productive element and the result of appropriation, the earth is the great unengendered stasis, the element superior to production that conditions the common appropriation and utilization of ground. They've been talking about this since chapter one, about this notion that there's this moment or there is this event, we could even say, whereby the body without organs, that production itself seems to emanate from it as though miraculated, right? And that's kind of where I was trying to feel out with you guys about, is that the sense of this notion of miraculation, uh, of almost like the immaculate conception whereby the earth seems to be the even though it's unengendered that right. it's generating, that is cause right. that's quasi causing right. all of these I syntheses. Would, I always yeah. think if it's helpful, like the image of quasi cause that helps me is the image of Thomas Hobbes the Leviathan, where mm-hmm. if they say the despot is the sole quasi cause, that image you'll probably readily bring to your mind of all of the citizens and subjects with the body of the despot enveloping them. That means that every act of exchange has a kind of, the quasi-cause of the despot is present, just as in the act of exchange under capital, it's capital. The two have different logics. Right. Right. To me, it's this kind of, I would say a background kind of form of causality, which is operating on a stoic metaphysics, which Chrysippus is the central figure. And I think so that is at play, but the metaphysics behind that are so deeply fascinating to me, right? Because you got to throw Spinoza in there and Mm -hmm. Spinoza's theory of causality as well. And a lot of actually has been written about the Lose's theory of causality, but it's such a beautiful world. You know, it's a beautiful way of conceptualizing relations. Just, I just wanted to say that as this kind of an aside. So yeah. Oh, there's the image. Yeah. That looks really you see what I'm saying, though? Yeah, it's like a body without organs of capital right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the body without organs of, of the despot. Of the despot, not yeah. capital. Not That's capital. The totally, totally. But it yeah. provides it provides a model for, yeah. perhaps for capital. And, and maybe, maybe part of the miraculation, too, is the fact that what makes capital capital is its, is its surplus, right? It yeah. generates the surplus. So would that... So it quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-quasi-
quasi causes its own surplus. Is that kind of in yeah, line with the this? Fact, the fact that they call it a fetish too. So mm, that actually mm-hmm. helps us understand Marx's notion of commodity fetishism insofar as when we have those ideological fetishistic relations to consumption and so on, we can now map this metaphysics onto that logic, right? So it's a kind of Deleuzean framework for thinking commodity fetishism, which is, I think a lot more work actually could be done to tease that out. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, you know what I'm saying? That's a great essay, right? That's something to elaborate on. If you're listening out there, audience, you just got a a free essay topic. (laughs) I wonder if Baudrillard would be instructive or at least, at least as a foil there too. Relative to commodity. Cause? Oh, no, okay. no, no, no. Specifically relative to this commodity fetishization, because that is something that he's... For sure he would. He's got an essay on it in um, for critique of the political economy of the sign. While you're yeah. looking that up, what about... Uh, okay, so the miraculating stuff definitely recalls Schraber, right? Does that mm. have any purchase in this discussion? Mm. Schraber's organs are de- and re-miraculating constantly. Right. Right. Yes. And I don't know, that has a sort of almost that creative destruction element of capital mm-hmm. and territorialization, deterritorialization, et cetera, like that kind of back and forth destruction, reformulation, da, 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 and so forth. But I don't know if that, how yeah, much that's just every, kind of just miraculation that I'm making. That I think conclusion. the first time they mention miraculation is in chapter one. It's related to Schraber. I mean, yeah. I think anything in the book can be related back to Schraber. That's yeah, just me. I guess that's yeah. true, right? Yeah, I think there's different forms of quasi-cause as well. So each miraculating event for Schreber in Schreber's phenomenology, Schreber's sort of zone, his reality, you would have to assign a certain logic of quasi-cause that are at work there. But I think I wanted to return to this question of the birth of the person and really relying a lot on this study of the Dogon people, which I actually don't know much about. But what they say is that at a certain point, the society has the filial relations which become exclusive. And there's a whole kind of, argument that is furthered there. And Taylor, you probably know more about that study that they're leaning on, but that this is the origin of repression, right? And that the alliance of the filial filial system becomes, importantly, a new way of how individuals remember of memory itself, right? And that memory now is repressed. It's like the origin of a kind of, I guess it's the origin of the person is the origin of a certain new form of repression, which is very important. Because when they later talk about the structure of incest, the line they're going to take there has to do with their theory of the origin of repression. And there's been a lot of, for example, René Girard. I don't know if you all know René Girard, but Girard, the famous French philosopher, he wrote a review of Anti-Oedipus, and I was just looking at it before we got together. Oh, good. He he (laughs) takes them to task on this point, which we can talk about later. But can can we talk about the Dogon people study, if you know much about that? I know mostly about that from the sections here and in how, how to make a body without organs. Yeah. Right. So this guy, Marcel Grier. Marcel, Marcel yeah. Grier. I think that's, that's him. And, and, and maybe Devereaux is the other guy they cite. If I'm, I'm unless that's unconnected. Jermaine Dieterlin the, and Marcel Grier sketch out Actually. a certain theory of the sun. So it's this, it's this certain advancement in the primitive socius, which introduces relations of filiational exchange, which treat what is being exchanged no longer in this kind of non-personage based structure, right? 
the rights breakdown, kind of there's a uh, breakdown perhaps in the initiatory structure as well that's in probably at, at play here. But the, the, the filial alliances, they say, become exclusive based is the, is the most important point. And so what I find interesting here on 154, 155 is that they're giving us a theory of both the birth of the person, but also the birth of this new structure of repression that comes with that. And that has effects also on myth, they say, right, where myth now uh, is what conditions the social relations and myth is what establishes a new cohesiveness of the generations, right? So right. we now have these things which are taken up through proper names and you have the kind of the Adkins or the Tuts mm. and this, you know, this whole thing happens here and that's where you get the, the plus and the negative and so on and so on, right? So it's very traumatic in a way, like it kind of sucks. Like it's like, oh, fuck, here we go. We're thrown now into the generational structure. Yeah, it reminds me what, what Coop was bringing up earlier about how the sort of biocosmic intense memory affiliation is repressed by the memory of alliances and words, right? This notion of how the symbolic kind of erupts and then fucks everything up or totally introduces this new logic. Now, for them, they want to try to turn Lacanian terminology on its head, which we won't really go right. into, but we, right. we've seen some of this, right, about how they talk about it's, it's not impossible, like incest isn't impossible, like the real, but like the symbolic, you know, and right. all this stuff that would make Lacanians tear their hair <laughs> out. But um, right. this, as you said, it, it is about this birth of the person. It's about making ambiguous, intense signs become these discernible signs and extension, right? This notion about the way that, way that Daniel Smith laid it out, and I, I feel like it may be too reductive, but it's still helpful, is this notion that in the germinal intense side, yeah. the uses of the syntheses are imminent, right? So you don't have global persons, right. you, you don't have exclusive destructions, you don't have uh, you know, these specific and global connections, right? Everything is as they kind of laid out in chapter two in terms of the syntheses, but it's when there is this shift and when the intense germinal influx becomes repressed and yeah. with this new memory of alliances and words with the symbolic or whatever you want to call it, that that's when the socius starts grinding its gears and making the human mega machine. And that's when you have these transcendent uses of the syntheses. Now, I'm not sure if I necessarily think it's that cut and dry, but I think it is at least helpful to like get a handle on why this is the, the problem of Oedipus is about the birth of persons yes. and the incest problem. Yes, yes. And persons, importantly, I don't know if resistance is the right word, but they are not complicit. They're not going along with being repressed from the germinal influx, which is why the desire and, it's, and the person behind the person, right? the body of workers behind the person is always more tethered with the germinal influx, which is yeah. why they can make the claim that they do about incest and the impossibility of incest because they have an allegiance to the conception of the birth of representation from this repressive thing, right? So we should probably just lay out what it is they say about incest and so on and so forth. But I think it's just really tricky. You can see ethically already that to bring this argument out into the public is going to have all of these red flags. It's very interesting that Wilhelm Reich himself, I don't know if you all knew this, was a, a victim of incest. Like he, he actually became a psychoanalyst because he dealt with that, right? Interesting. And so it's kind of like one of those arguments where it's sensitive. You know what I'm saying? Because if you've dealt with it, you got a lot of reaction formation to that experience, you know? So right. the, 
it's just like ethically, it's a tough argument to throw out there. You come across in a certain way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So them saying incest does not exist would probably hit someone like Willem Reich a little bit harder and be a little bit more at home. I like their citation of Derrida here. I mean, we brought him up oh, yeah. earlier in the episode, but the, the footnote where Derrida wrote a commentary of Rousseau before the feast, there was no incest because there was no prohibition of incest. After the feast, there is no longer any incest because it's prohibited. The feast right. itself would be the incest itself if any such thing itself could take place. They make it about persons and names, which I think is interesting, right? You're, you're either on this side or beyond where you don't yet have, you have names, but not yet persons or beyond you have persons, but the names, they say they, it slides like a stamp that's too wet. That's a metaphor. And that's an interesting one, <laughs> you know, but we could talk about. Slides like a stamp yeah. that's too wet. That is, that is rich. I get a lot from that. They try to lay out and kind of part of this theory of history. This is what Jay Lampert does in his Deleuze and Guattari in the philosophy of history book, this notion about names and effects. And they do a lot of this in both volumes. The, the Joan of Arc effect, the Heliogobulus effect is like the Kelvin effect, etc. I always found that to be interesting because that presupposes already that we're not talking about global persons. We're not talking about, right. you know, we're not talking about reliving the events of Joan of Arc in some sort of way, like it's imitating. And we haven't even gotten to what a proper name does vis-a-vis symbolization to the subject, right? Which is, which is why they're going to say like, on the side of proper names and how that situates your subjectivity is very different than how you would relate to the germinal influx. Like it's two different logics that are, that are intention, right? So maybe we could just say, they say, quote on 165, incest is the only retroactive effect of the repressing representation on the repressed representative. (laughs) The representation disfigures or displaces this representative against which it is directed. It projects onto the representative categories rendered discernible that it has established. It applies to the representative terms that did not exist before the alliance organized the positive and negative into a system in extension. The representation reduces the representative to what is blocked in the system. And that's a really tough passage, but (laughs) it's all there. Yeah, Actually, yeah. Like all, yeah. I like how they they've been telling us for so long, and they they're finally trying to start really explaining it that you can't, like Freud too quickly did, discern what is desired from what is prohibited. This move is precisely what the law prohibition wants. It wants to dishonor and disfigure what it prohibits. So it's the logic of the double bind. It's the double bind of Oedipus in perfect form. And they say, of course, desire will desire incest if it is structured representationally in this way. You're setting up a trap. And that's why they say the trap. Yeah. That Laius, the the blind seer, is the the pervert who establishes the whole game. (laughs) I love that whole business of perverts. Yeah. I like how they. They save Oedipus, the literary figure, by, by turning Laius or by seeing Laius as the paranoiac, right? As the, as the, the, the one who, and, and really in the story, that's kind of how it is, right? I mean, that's, that's why Oedipus is abandoned in the various stories, right? Because the oracles revealed the truth. You see this in Greek literature, probably in other literature too, but specifically in like Greek myth with the birth of Zeus, 
right? How Zeus comes to overthrow Cronus. Cronus is told by an oracle too that he will have a son or he will have a child that will overthrow him and take his place. You know, so Oedipus complex could be termed Laius complex or or Cronus complex, right? It could could be thought of as as the paranoiac rather than the the neurotic. Hundred percent. Yeah, this is the birth of the symbolic, and in that sense, Oedipus cannot create a line of flight out of it, despite you could even right. say his heroic attempts. Even yeah. when he is Oedipus Clonus wandering blinded in the desert, he's still tethered to it. He's still tethered to the signifier. He's still tethered to its law and so on, right? So the the Oedipus myth itself is like obvious antithesis of the whole proposal here, which is that such an escape is indeed feasible and that they've almost just laid it out here in these first three sections through the germinal influx in a way that this is the reserve of the line of flight. Maybe, I don't know if that makes sense, but it could be thought of in a way like that, you know? Yeah. This is all good. Tell us about Gerard. Oh yeah, just briefly. He's, he's weird. I mean, he's not weird. He's really important actually to read because why? Because he's one of the dominant, I mean, even though you probably read Andrew Culp's Dark Deleuze, where he talks about all of the Silicon Valley Deleuzeans, a huge other kind of philosopher for Silicon Valley is Rene Girard. Peter Thiel is a Girardian, created this multi-million dollar foundation dedicated to mimetic desire and studies of mimetic desire. But in Violence in the Sacred, he talks about incest. But then I'll send you all the article if you'd like. He did a really thorough review of Anti-Oedipus, which is really worth reading. It's going to take you several hours to read it because he spent his time on it. When it comes to incest, he argues that the, in essence, that the symbolic order for Gerard is not born from this representational structure, although he has a lot of sympathy for what they're trying to do here and their theory of persons and so on, because Gerard's also an anti-humanist, a conservative anti-humanist. Anyways, long story short, his big idea here is basically the notion that the symbolic order is born from the scapegoat mechanism. The structure of the scapegoat kind of functions to resolve, you know, this whole business they talk about of how the filial relations become exteriorized and the outside becomes a problem, a point of hostility and so on. To resolve that dynamic, which he also acknowledges that way in social relations, social orders, to resolve that, societies need a scapegoat because a scapegoat satiates the crisis of the exterior. Whereas in the prior form, you had less antagonism in this way. He acknowledges this new form of antagonism, but says that actually social orders create this solution through the scapegoat. And then he, that then becomes a way to analyze as a transhistorical way. Every social order has this structure and every Absolutely. symbolic, every symbolic is structured around the necessity of, of a scapegoat, basically. So we're already in 101, but whatever. It's really interesting because I've been thinking about the necessity of of a scapegoat of another yeah. as far and looking through this the biggest yeah. way to this has been through Durkheim yeah specifically in his notion of his theory of deviance which I've talked about quite a bit because he has this kind of Hegelian approach to it where deviance serves a function in like yeah. a functionalist approach because it says okay for the socius it's like okay this is good behavior this is bad so there has to be by necessity an other that is ostracized or left out or that is yeah. not part of the whole. There has to be a bifurcation. Yeah. It's really crazy to read Gerard because you start seeing the structure and you're like, oh, wow, fuck, he's onto something. Just intuitively. You know what I'm saying? Like at a workplace, yeah. job, schools, institutions do structure themselves in this way. So he's not an idiot. 
is worth looking at for sure. Yeah, I, I think the difference becomes contingency oftentimes for these, this reactionary point of view. Yeah. Well, the thing with Teal is really weird. It's kind of futile because their argument is that you can, that Gerard gives you the kind of mechanisms to satiate and end rivalrous desire, forms of desire and conflict. It's an organizational strategy to create kind of more harmonious internal organizational culture right. environments. And one of the premises there, because everything is about debilitating the scapegoat through ritual. Mm. You know how we just talk about initiation is in under crisis in this movement, kind of we're talking about into the, you know, that's why Gerard is so pro-religion because religion knows how to satiate ritual. They know how to do rituals well, right? Which solves the problem of violence. It solves the necessity for the scapegoat, right? Which is why like, you're going to reenact Abraham's sacrifice mm-hmm. through the ritual every year, which is totally like a scapegoat logic and all of that, but it, it satiates it, right? It puts it to rest, right? And so a society that doesn't have those rights or mechanisms to do that is really fucked up, like as a really yeah. like- <laughs> Right. It goes back to symbolic exchange and death once again. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess I would say that in A Thousand Plateaus, when they- I believe it's the faciality plateau where they, no, no, it's not. I'm sorry. I think it's several regimes of signs. They talk about the logic of the scapegoat. I'm not sure if they, they, they cite Gerard, but I have to look at that again. This is uh, a, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that'll be like for, for next time or or something. Yeah. Yeah, Well, do we feel like we've, I have one quick thing. I just wanted to go back to the mechanical and organic solidarity that is Durkheimian is that, that's sort of a part of it because, okay, the, the organic solidarity of the smaller communities. Okay, so it's great that there's no capitalism to, over, to sort of to enable like the despotic machine. But at the same time, though, like you said about the gift economy, this is a highly, highly socially regulated organizational structure. So it's very, if you're on the out group, you're, you're shunned. Versus right. versus the mechanical solidarity of a of a post industrial society where social rules are a lot more obscured, right? There's a lot more freedom to move within the whole. There's a lot more going on. There's not these set very rote patterns that you have to follow and prescriptive so and so. But like you say, at a certain point, that becomes problematic. It seems, but that's also the potential of the kind of that's the like positive side. Or potential for capitalism is decoding the flows and allowing for something new rather than this very juridical uh, approach. It frees up that and says, you know, go go do and create and destroy and see what happens. It's probably uh, reductive. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Does it I do I kind of want to return to this initiatory thing that they bring up so much, but it doesn't it doesn't have a theory of that. Like it doesn't have yeah. the, I don't know the technology or the instrumentation of that to on offer. You have to which is why the subjectivity is schizophrenic. Even to say Bettelheim recognizes that schizophrenics impose mutilation on themselves to initiate right. themselves says a lot. Yeah, so- especially because they say that the schizophrenic resists, you know, specifically resists oedipalization. Yeah. Oedipalization doesn't stick to the schizophrenic. This is that's why Freud right. wouldn't work with the schiz- schizos. <laughs> yeah. Remember? Uh, if I'm remembering is- correctly. <laughs> no, you're. you're- I want to talk about this so much more. I feel like we're just like start. We're opening. <laughs> right now we are. Doors <laughs> off. You know, this like feels like the beginning of something here, but I know we have to bring it to a close soon. Yeah, I mean the, the way I always think about these things, and Daniel, we will definitely want to have you back, especially as you get deeper. Into yeah, if your you work. want to. Yeah. Um, 
that what we try to do here is kind of, I always feel like it's more about getting people excited about the reading so that they might want to do their own investigations rather than necessarily being the, the place where we exposit every, every uh, point. Oh yeah, of course. It's that speculative exchange that I've appreciated. Yeah. That kind of getting into that flow is so essential for, for the production of thought. And even, Mm -hmm. even the very possibility of one of us actually inventing a concept, all of the labor that goes into that mere chance or possibility that we would one day do that is you have to have these sessions if you don't then you're not do you know what i'm saying like that's why i've come to realize about philosophy and critical theory and stuff like that is if you don't have these exchanges you can't really do this in isolation you can't just you have to you have to process it this way you know any one thing can trigger a line of flight could be any could be the total opposite of what i've been thinking about but there's but it's also it, like a calisthenics. Or in, yeah, it's like in coming in contact exercise. with the real or whatever, that's yeah. when I can, then something happens. I need the exercise, right? Like I right. need- Be out on a stroll. Yeah. No, I need, I need to- Move, uh, move, be, don't stay in one place. But anyways. This has been awesome, my friends. Really, thanks for having me on this program. You guys were awesome. I learned just watching you two go back and forth was- <sighs> was fucking awesome so well you, you contributed too i mean like, we all we all were i think everybody, everybody was, was firing on all c- cylinders and dan you, you gave me like a dozen sources to to go check out so i'm excited right. about that and i do want to see the the gerard if if there's any one thing that um you send us i definitely want to see that yeah. but i i can't forget the cannibal metaphysics i'll have to check yeah. that out because that's exciting and the george jackson and yeah the Sibertine blanc on the marks reading i've been thinking about grabbing that book but it's just sometimes your list is like gets overwhelming you know you got to make choices i really liked how daniel a lot of the stuff that you brought up was really clarifying a lot of the stuff we've been investigating through symbolic oh yeah that was helpful that was really good that's amazing yeah yeah you helped out tremendously i think Uh, you brought like new insights it's been an honor honestly i feel like um elevated and just like uh, i'm excited (laughs) I'm charged up. Charged up, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I tell I tell Coop, that's one of the highlights of my week is after we do something like this, it does feel like you've had that that workout, you know, where where yeah, you're yeah, you, running you're drained, thing. but but you're also uh, heightened. It is an alpha bung kind of, right? I mean, like uh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you're you're drained, but you're also it's that adrenaline, right? And uh and so we we really appreciate you coming on and I will not be restricted by monday night so hopefully i'll be able to retweet and talk again on twitter <laughs> i've been restricted for a week for being a naughty boy oh shit and yeah so but that's fine it's kind of like a, a vacation from twitter you know what i mean sometimes okay, okay. you need that that's that's like my one social media platform so so taking a a self-imposed vacation for uh, a week is is kind of nice because i can like look at the timeline and like yeah. people's tweets but i can't yeah retweet or or, a reply so it is kind of uh let me just give you one plug if you're interested yeah and if you have like an hour and a half available i just did a really great podcast with this one of the foremost nietzschean scholars in america this guy jeffrey wait he's at hornell check it out i know you guys read nietzsche and you recently did a show on um twilight yeah on twilight yeah check it out see what you think yeah he's no joke i learned a ton anyway nice one That's exciting. Is that a recent episode from uh, Renaissance? Oh, yeah. wow. Came out well, you, you heard that here. Uh, if you guys listening to this, if you want uh, if you want more excitement, go listen to Renaissance Vampires. We'd love to have you all on in the future, for sure. Stuff like this is um, is everything. So 
Thanks again, gentlemen. We appreciate you. We definitely would like to have you back on in the future. We'll, we'll come on uh, your show in the future, whatever. Well, this has been a really nice. Um, yeah, this was awesome. Just re- really nice dynamic. And I agree with Cooper. You, you, you've actually, I think you're going to have positive effects on, oh, absolutely. On, on our future discussions of this text and symbolic exchange and death. So just for that, yeah. I, have to, I have to thank you. You guys rule. I'm a huge fan. Don't stop what you're doing. Thanks, man. We appreciate that. Yeah, this, this flowed amazingly. I mean, I know you oh, know we we usually have fun and stuff, but this definitely is one of those where I feel I got goosebumps, kind of. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Daniel, we appreciate you, and we'll hope to see you again soon. All the best. Peace out. See you, Take buddy. Care. See ya. And that will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins for the week, the y'all. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.